These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to the Coffee with Jeff podcast. This is the show in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and then force that knowledge onto you, the podcast listener. This is episode 229. Now, this is the part of the show where I usually give you a little teaser about the upcoming story. But you know, every once in a while, I write a story that's way too short for a full episode. So today I'm offering three of those shorter stories. All three stories are about incredible women. One is about the first female mayor in the USA, the second, a lady who defied the courts for her own ideals, and the third, an amazing story of survival. Why don't we get to it? Our first story today is about the first female mayor in the United States of America. She was a lady who didn't even know she was on the ballot. The people who put her on the ballot were, as Shakespeare put it, hoisted by their own petard. Now, before the 20th century, politics in the United States was male-dominated. The 19th Amendment, which gave ladies the right to vote, wasn't ratified until August 18, 1920, and without the female vote, how could any woman hope to get into public office? Well, this woman was elected mayor of a small Kansas town 33 years before the 19th Amendment. Her name was Susan M. Salter. She was born Susanna Medora Kinsey on March 2, 1860 in Belmont County, Ohio. Her parents were descendants of Quaker colonists from England. When she was 12, the family moved to an 80-acre farm in Caw Valley near Salt Lake in Kansas. She went to the Kansas State Agricultural College in 1879, but left six weeks before graduation due to illness. She met and married Louis Salter in 1880. The two would eventually have nine children, one of whom died in infancy. The couple moved to the town of Argonia, Kansas in 1882, where Lewis managed a hardware store while studying to be a lawyer. Susanna's parents soon moved to the same town as well and bought the hardware store. When the town was incorporated in 1885, Susanna's father, Oliver, became its first mayor, and her husband, Lewis, took the job as the first city clerk. Susanna helped write city ordinances and became an officer in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or the WCTU. The WCTU was founded in 1874 in Cleveland, Ohio, and soon became the largest and most influential women's group of the 19th century. The group concerned itself mostly with prohibition, but also moved into areas such as labor laws, prison reform, and suffrage. In 1887, the Kansas legislature enacted a law giving women of first, second, and third-class cities the right to vote in local elections. And since Argonia was a third-class city, the women in Argonia became eligible to vote. Of course, many men resented women's involvement in politics, as it was thought to be something, you know, just for the guys. On top of that, most disagreed with the WCTU's stance on the subject of prohibition. 
Men often attended their meetings and heckled the proceedings, especially with its support of the enforcement of state prohibition laws. Now, elections were a bit strange in Kansas at the time. One didn't need to declare a candidate to an elected office until the day before the election. So a group of men who wanted to teach these upstart women a lesson decided to do something tricky. The day before the 1860 election, they put the name of the only CTU member who lived within the city limits on the ballot for mayor. That was Susanna Salter. They figured the humiliation of losing the election by a landslide would discourage ladies from running again. Oddly, Susanna didn't even find out she was on the ballot till the day of the election. Once finding out, she agreed. If elected, she would serve for the one-year term as mayor. What the pranksters didn't count on was that the Christian Temperance Union had abandoned its own preferred candidate and decided to back Susanna. Also, the local Republican Party chairman sent a delegation to her home. She was doing laundry at the time when they asked if she was really running. She said yes, and that if she won, she would serve. The Republican Party probably wasn't happy with the way the election proceedings were being sabotaged by these pranksters, so they agreed to vote for her. Shortly after the election, the Topeka Daily Capital had this story. A lady mayor, Miss Doria Salter, was elected mayor of Argonia last Thursday by a larger majority than any other candidate has ever received in the city. Her opponent was a good man and one of the leading citizens of the Berg. Yeah, and that's one thing I noticed. The papers at the time referred to her as Mrs. Dora Salter. I'm not quite sure why. But she ended up with 60% of the vote. She was asked shortly after the election if she planned to become a politician. She said, No, indeed. I shall be very glad when my term of office expired and shall be only too happy to therefore devote myself entirely, as I always have done heretofore, to care for my family. She served her one year in office with little problems and received her pay of one dollar. After that, she returned back to her regular life. She lived until March 17, 1961 and died at the age of 101. There was a time when the idea of a woman dressing in pants rather than a dress was considered scandalous. Even in the 1960s, Carl Reiner had to fight for the idea that Mary Tyler Moore could wear pants as Laura Petrie on the Dick Van Dyke show. The network was insisting on dresses all the time. Now, of course, it's common for ladies to dress any way they want. And part of that may be credited to a woman named Helen in the late 1930s. Her name was Helen Hulick, and the year was 1838. She was a teacher for the deaf in California. Her home was robbed, and the men responsible had been caught. On November 9, 1938, the 28-year-old showed up in court wearing slacks and a blouse of bright green and orange to testify. Judge Arthur C. Guerin was so outraged that he wouldn't even hear the case. He rescheduled the case, telling Hulick to return wearing a dress, and he said he would go to the limits to preserve the dignity of the court. The following day, Helen told the Los Angeles Times, You tell a judge I will stand by my rights. If he orders me into a dress, I won't do it. I like slacks. They're comfortable. The judge responded by saying, I don't set styles, but costumes acceptable on the beach are not acceptable in formal courtroom procedures. Slacks are not proper attire in court. 
It's tough sometimes to be a judge. The papers ran stories with headlines like Fight Brews Over Court Etiquette Upon Wearing Slacks. Yep, the battle between Hulick and Judge Guerin had begun. On March 15, 1938, she returned to court wearing blue slacks. According to a Times report, Judge Guerin said, The last time you were in this court dressed as you are now and reclining your neck on the back of a chair, you drew more attention from spectators, prisoners, and court attachés than the legal business at hand. You were requested to return in garb acceptable to courtroom procedures. Today you come back dressed in pants, openly defying the court and its duties to conduct judicial proceedings in an orderly manner. It is time a decision was reached on this matter, and the power the court has to maintain what it considers orderly conduct. The court hereby orders and directs you to return tomorrow in acceptable dress. If you insist on wearing slacks again, you will be prevented from testifying because it would hinder the administration of justice but be prepared to be punished according to the law for contempt of court. Helen responded by saying to the press, Listen, I've worn slacks since I was 15. I don't own a dress except a formal. If he wants me to appear in a formal gown, that's okay with me. I'll come back in slacks, and if he puts me in jail, I hope it will free women forever of anti-slacksism. And she did just that and got five days in jail. Well, they can imprison me, but they can't imprison my soul, she said on her way to jail. Anyway, I'll have time in jail to paste up my scrapbook with poems, mostly children's verses. Later in her cell, she said, Slacks don't interfere with my work as a teacher. I still contend that they don't have any authority to tell me how I shall dress. After being booked, she was given a prison denim dress. There are pictures of her in that dress online, and it's pretty funny. After, she was released on her own recognizance after her attorney, William Katz, obtained a writ of habeas corpus and declared he would carry on the matter to the appellate court. On November 19, 1938, the appellate division overturned Judge Guerin's contempt citation during a habeas corpus hearing. Hulick was free to wear slacks in court. The appellate court said her outfit did not of itself interfere with orderly court procedure, but involved merely a question of taste, a matter not within the court's control. Judge Guerin responded by saying, I accept the decision as final and will be guided by it in the future. When she finally arrived in court to testify, Helen Hulick showed up in a dress. It seemed she had made her point. When asked about wearing feminine garb, she said, it's a woman's privilege to change her mind. Our final story is not about a woman fighting for her rights, but a young woman fighting for her life. She went through a horrific, almost unbelievable event and lived to tell the tale in what is an incredible survival story. Her name was Julian Kafka, who was born on October 10, 1954. Her father was a biologist and her mother an orthodontist. When she was 14, her parents established Penguana, a research station in the Amazon rainforest. While there, she became a jungle child, learning many jungle ways, including survival techniques. Education authorities had a problem that the young teenager was not getting a proper education, so they insisted she traveled to Peru to attend school. But her real story begins on Christmas Eve, 1971, when she was 17 years old. 
She was with her mother flying on a Lockhead L-188A Electra turboprop 86-seat passenger plane. They were on their way home to be with their father for Christmas. Her father had actually tried to talk her out of taking this flight as the airline had a very poor reputation, but they wanted to get home so they took the flight just the same. And it was only an hour flight, so what could go wrong? And for about 45 minutes, everything went well. Although her mother was a nervous flyer, Juliana was excited about flying. And then the plane entered a thunderstorm and began to shake violently. No one is quite sure why the pilots decided to go directly through the storm rather than going around it. It may have been that they were trying to keep on a holiday schedule. We're not really sure, but whatever, they headed right into the violent storm. The crashes of thunder and the flashing of lightning were everywhere. The overhead compartments popped open and the luggage and Christmas presents began to tumble out. Julian looked over at her mother and saw that she was very nervous. Looking out the window towards the wing, Julian saw a blinding flash coming from the engine. Apparently, it had been struck by lightning. The plane went into a nosedive. As she held her mother's hand, she remembers her saying, Now it's all over. People in the plane began to scream, panic, and cry. And then the plane broke apart. The next thing Julian knew, she was floating in the sky, still strapped to her seat, which was part of two other seats, her at the end. Her mother was no longer by her side. I was outside in the open air, she later said. I hadn't left the plane. The plane had left me. All she heard as she fell was the wind rushing by. She remembered looking down and seeing the treetops that looked like heads of broccoli, and she seemed to be spinning. She was upside down, and the seatbelt was pulling so hard she could barely breathe, and then she blacked out. When she awoke, she was lying in the jungle upside down, still strapped into the seats that were above her. She had fallen almost two miles. There's a couple of explanations of her almost impossible survival. One, the storm caused an updraft of air, slowing her descent. Two, she started to spin with her seat on the side of a three-bench seat, causing a helicopter effect, like a seed falling from a maple tree. And three, when she landed, she hit vines and tree branches on the way down that slowed her fall and landed on dense foliage, cushioning the impact. But whatever the reason, she was alive. She said as she lay there, she was asleep and dreaming. She dreamt that she was filthy and needed a bath. She told herself in the dream to wake up and take a bath then. And then she woke up. I lay there almost like an embryo for the rest of the day and the whole night until the next morning, she wrote in her memoir. I am completely soaked, covered with mud and dirt, for it must have been pouring rain for a day and night. As she attempted to sit up, her head screamed in pain. But after some time, she was able to get up and check herself for injuries. Her collarbone was broken, her knee sprained, one eye was swollen shut, the other could barely open, and she had a few cuts and gashes, including a huge gash on her arm. Worst of all, she had lost her eyeglasses and one of her shoes. Her first thought was to find her mother and began calling her mother's name. When the plane didn't arrive at its destination, 
A search immediately began, but the problem was, the way the aircraft had broken apart and fell into pieces in the jungle, it left the trees completely intact. From the sky there was no evidence of a plane crashing, and the rainforest is a very big place. The search planes could see nothing unusual to clue them in of a crash. Once in a while, Julian said she heard the planes fly overhead. When the planes stopped going overhead, she said, What I experienced was not fear, but a boundless feeling of abandonment. She was able to find a small bag of candy to survive on as she began walking through the jungle. This was a jungle filled with poisonous snakes and spiders, stinging bees that landed on her face, and the ever-present swarms of mosquitoes and flies that were biting her all the time. You've probably seen images or films of people hacking their way through a dense jungle with a machete just to make a path so they can walk. Imagine a young 17-year-old girl with no machete trying to make her way, and no matches either to light a fire, no way to build a shelter or cook food. All she had was a bag of candy. And without tools, there was no way for her to build a shelter, and without a shelter, she couldn't sleep. There were way too many animals and insects in the jungle to allow for that. And then she experienced her biggest horror. She found another three seats smashed into the ground with dead bodies still strapped in. The seats were embedded deep into the ground and she thought about how they must have died instantly when they hit. But of course, she had to move on. It was her jungle skills that kept her going. The heat and humidity were intense during the day, and the nights were freezing cold. But she found she wasn't scared or worried. Her only thought was to keep going. And her big concern was how flies had gotten into the wound on her arm and had laid eggs. She could see the larva starting to hatch, and her big concern was, once rescued, she would lose the arm. For days she staggered on. At one point, though, she heard water. It was just a small trickle running through the jungle, and not only did it let her hydrate, but she also knew that if she followed it, it would probably take her to a creek, and that creek would lead to a larger stream, and eventually it would lead her to a river, and there are always settlements by rivers. Now, in the rivers in the jungle, there are riverbed stingrays that, when stepped on, instinctively lash out with their barbed, venomous tails. But when she walked in the water, she had enough sense to carry a stick to poke in the water ahead of her to scare the stingrays away. She went with the current, but sadly, if she had gone the opposite way, she might have been rescued in a day or two. But she didn't, and she traveled by river for days. Soon her bag of candy gave out. The 17-year-old was starving, hurt, bug bites everywhere, barely able to walk or use her arm. But she kept going. It was on the 10th day during the evening that she settled down on the bank of the river, exhausted. She was sort of in a dreamlike, foggy state when she saw something. She thought she was dreaming. It couldn't be. It looked like a small rowboat in the water. She made her way slowly to it and touched it. To her shock, it was real. Suddenly she was wide awake and began looking for the owners, but none were to be found. She looked over to the bank and saw a man-made walkway going up from the river. It was about nine feet high. She said because she was so weak, it took her hours to climb up. 
but once on top, she saw a small hut and climbed into it. And for the first time in 11 days, she fell asleep. She wasn't hungry, but knew without eating she might be dead in a short time. And there were these poison arrow tree frogs all around. Now, in spite of their name, these frogs can be eaten by a healthy person. But in her state, eating one might have killed her. So it was a good thing that, no matter how hard she tried, she just couldn't catch one. She lay there resting and hurting when suddenly she heard voices. Three men, villagers, came in and discovered the sickly child. She felt like it was as if an angel had come. They used gasoline to try to clean out her infested arm. They carried her to a boat and began a 12-hour journey to a town. Once there, she was put on an airplane and flown to a missionary hospital where her wounds were treated and she was reunited with her father. After recovering from her injuries, Julian assisted search parties in locating the crash site and recovering the bodies of victims. Her mother's body was discovered on January 12, 1972. Later in life, Julian went on to earn a degree in biology and returned to Peru to do extensive research on bats. But for years after, she suffered bad dreams and was filled with survivor's guilt. She ended up writing a book, her own autobiography, entitled When I Fell from the Sky. In 1974, a low-budget, heavily fictionalized Italian film version of her story was released called Miracles Still Happen. In the Werner Herzog documentary film of her story called Wings of Hope, a film that a lot of today's information came from, by the way, Julian talked about how ridiculous that film was. Julian Kopik is still with us today, but now she's known as Julian Diller, as she's happily married. In 2019, the government of Peru awarded her with the Order of Merit for Distinguished Service in the degree of Grand Officer. A little bit before I go. The bulk of today's episode was the story of Julie Kopik and her survival. A couple of things. One, I hope I pronounced her name correctly. I went to a bunch of websites, and every website had a different pronunciation for her last name. So, anyway, now I wrote most of the story before I watched Werner Herzog's documentary, and because Kopeck was heavily interviewed in the hour long doc, I was able to add a lot more details. I just want to point that out in case people have already watched the documentary and they say, hey, Jeff is just repeating what they said. Probably, but it was damn interesting. One thing that I found very interesting from the documentary, which I didn't talk about, was the fact that Herzog, at the time of her crash, was making the film Aguirre, The Wrath of God, a great movie, by the way, in the same area. He was at the same airport on the same day that Julian was there, planning to take a flight on the same airline. His flight was canceled, and Julian's wasn't because there was only one working plane, and obviously it didn't work that well. He said later that he learned that the mechanic for the airline had only previously worked on motorcycles before getting the job to work on aircraft engines, and that the pilots that they used were not certified. Anyway, the documentary is on YouTube and it's worth a watch. You'll find a lot more information and told better than I told it. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Anyway, how about the ending credits? 
You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. Of course, I thank you for listening. Hey, if you can afford to help me out with the money it costs to produce this show, that would be fantastic. I have a Patreon page, and you can find a link to it at the Coffee with Jeff website. And if you don't want to give me money, I get it, but just then tell your friends about it or or repost the link on social media or something, won't you? You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff. Again, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you can join. You're encouraged to suggest stories for me to use on any of these platforms. And links to all the sources that I use to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to it on my website. I want to thank my wife of 37 years for being my wife of 37 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with another special program. Hey, thank you for listening. Coffee. Coffee.